You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Dr. Anne Lawrence is a physician, sex researcher, and academic writer. She's also a post-operative male-to-female transsexual who underwent gender transition in 1996. Since early childhood, she experienced an intense desire to have a female body, but she was unable to find any scientific or popular descriptions of transsexualism that spoke to her experience. This all changed in the early 90s when she discovered Dr. Ray Blanchard's writings about the concept of autogynephilia, which he defined as a male's propensity to be sexually aroused by the thought of himself as female. His revolutionary concept gave Dr. Lawrence an essential insight into the meaning of her desire for sex reassignment, and it helped her find the courage to undergo gender transition. Subsequently, she began to research and write extensively about transsexualism and associated issues, both in academic journals and on her website, Transsexual Women's Resources. But she's best known for her controversial book, Men Trapped in Men's Bodies, published in 2013. The book provides a detailed summary and analysis of existing research about autogynephilia and related phenomenon, and it also contains excerpts from narratives that were submitted by over 200 male informants describing their personal experiences of autogynephilic transsexualism and gender dysphoria. In our discussion today, Anne tells us about her early experiences with AGP in childhood and how she tried various ways to navigate, alleviate, and avoid this propensity. She ultimately transitioned in her 40s, and now at 71, she reflects back on the long game. We do spend time talking about finding Dr. Blanchard's work and her own research, her book, and her academic interests in understanding this AGP experience. The end of the conversation took an unexpected turn when Anne described the mindset, the intensity, and the desperate measures that seem very reasonable to someone who is tortured by severe autogynephilia. For the record, Anne has not been involved in the field for many years, and her reflections don't encompass the ROGD phenomenon. Stella and I feel it's really important to listen to people's experiences so we can understand all the manifestations of gender dysphoria. However, we believe in the power of therapeutic intervention, and we don't think such an extreme approach is ever helpful to individuals who are so deeply distressed. This conversation was really interesting, very honest, and we hope you enjoy our discussion with Dr. Anne Lawrence. Good afternoon, Stella. We're here on a weekend. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, and it's good to see you, Sasha, and it's also great to see Anne Lawrence. You're very welcome to our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. We're we're so glad to have you here. Um, I mean, you've written this kind of amazing book. To be honest, I haven't read everything, but I, I've read pieces of it, and it's just the most in-depth look at the experience of non-homosexual trans experiences in males. It's really remarkable, and we are so glad to have you here and share your insights with our program. So uh, where should we start? I, I can imagine a lot of places I'd like to start. 
I would like to just jump in and commend you on the title, Men Trapped in Men's Bodies. Yes. Well, thank you. It's just so good. It's just such a good title. I just think it says so much with with mm. those few words. And when I first heard it, I went, oh, OK, <laughs> now we're yeah. on to something really kind of we're really going there. I suppose where where would you like to start? What 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 do you remember maybe of your childhood and stuff? What Where did you begin your, for want of a better word, your journey? I'm happy to talk about that, but perhaps it would be useful to start with considering what autogynephilia is. It's a topic I've written a lot about. It will come up in uh, my discussions of myself and in much of my writing. Um, as, As you may know, the term autogynephilia was coined by Dr. Ray Blanchard in 1989. He formally defined it as a male's propensity to be sexually aroused by the thought of himself or image of himself as a female. I think it's worth taking a moment to unpack that definition a little bit. First of all, he described it as a male's propensity, not a man's propensity. Yes, autogynephilia is observed most frequently in adult males, but it's also observed in children, in male children, and in male adolescents. So it's something that can be observed and can be reported quite early. Autogynephilia is also a propensity. It's not necessarily an exclusive pattern of arousal in autogynephilic males, but it's a tendency to that kind of arousal. It often exists in association with other kinds of sexual arousal, and its intensity relative to other sources of arousal can be intense or can be relatively minor. But arousal is the the sine qua non of the definition. If you don't have sexual arousal to that thought or image of yourself as a woman, it's very hard to diagnose autogynephilia. And I just misspoke. It's not arousal to the idea of oneself as a woman. It's arousal to the idea of oneself as a female, uh, being female-bodied, having female anatomy that often is expressed as a desire to be a woman, to manifest the behaviors and social roles that females uh, display in our culture. But the essence of it is the desire to be female. Mm-hmm. You said, Has that been helpful? Yeah, yeah, fascinating already. I'm gripped. Um, you said there was uh, autogynephilic children, bo- boys, and autogynephilic adolescents, and autogynephilic men. And would these autogynephilic children, uh, um, w- would they be, I don't understand where they come if they're prepubescent. I, I don't understand this context. Well, it's generally believed that Children can't accurately report their history before age four or five. But there are at least two case reports in the literature of very young children under the age of three who were observed to display penile erections when they had a chance to play with or wear women's clothing. One of them was described in a paper by uh, Ray Blanchard Another one in an early report by the American psychoanalyst Robert Stoller. So we have very limited observational evidence 
that autogynephilia can manifest in children. And there are many reports of autogynephilic men who describe pretty convincingly uh, arousal to wear women's clothes, girls' clothes, dating back as far as they could remember. So this kind of, I mean, I imagine we might jump around a bit, but this really brings up for me, you know, before we got started, we were talking about, um, you know, what are your thoughts on these kind of young transitioners? Because um, our understanding is you transitioned later in life in your 40s, and you have thought about and um, alluded to your thoughts on these adolescents who may desire transition, perhaps because of this really strong propensity. So it might be interesting to just hear your thoughts on that a bit, Anne. I'm happy to discuss that issue, but I think it might be useful to lay the groundwork for that kind of consideration by talking a little bit more about the nature of autogynephilia. You asked me whether I would be willing to discuss my personal history, and perhaps that will be useful or illustrative. I remember at age six being fascinated by the clothing of a little girl who lived close to me and who I often played with. She had a, a ballerina's tutu that I just, I really wanted to wear that. I didn't know why, but I did. And I remember that distinctly. I wasn't a feminine child, although I wasn't necessarily a very masculine one, but I clearly was happy in some ways, or at least not discontented with being a boy. I engaged in rough and tumble play most of my Friends were boys, and in uh, in fantasy play, I wasn't the the queen or the princess. I was, you know, the king or the prince. Or I took some rather masculine role. So this interest in wearing girls' clothes, or the idea of it, and its fascination for me was kind of a puzzle. I certainly remember by age eight that when I thought of being a girl or looking like a girl, I would get erections. And I didn't know what to make of that. It was puzzling. It was shameful. But I didn't know what to do with it. I remember at age eight, my parents asked me, well, what would you want for Christmas? And I wanted to say, oh, would you buy me a dress? But I didn't know how to say that. My desire felt incomprehensible. It was shameful. I didn't dare to say it. Well, finally, at age 14, I found the courage to say to my parents, I think I want to be a girl. That's how I expressed it at the time. And so I was sent off to psychotherapy. And I immediately realized that that wasn't going to be helpful, that the therapist I saw had no real empathy for me or really very little understanding of what I was going through. I entered the University of Chicago when I was 16. And just about that time, uh, Harry Benjamin published his groundbreaking book, The Transsexual Phenomenon. I remember reading it in the medical library at the University of Chicago and being struck that this was the first exploration I had found of what uh, male-to-female transsexualism consisted of. But again, in Benjamin's book, I didn't find anything that 
really spoke to my own experience. Uh, according to Benjamin, the, the real transsexuals had been feminine since childhood, uh, usually were sexually attracted to males. So I didn't find the answer to my situation there. And do you mind if I ask you a question? You, you quickly talked about psychotherapy not being helpful. Would you be willing to share what were what was the psychotherapist saying? What were some of the things that happened in there that you didn't feel understood? You didn't feel empathized with, obviously. What type of therapy was this? What did the therapist attempt to kind of do with you, I suppose? Well, I was 14 at the time, and I didn't have a clear understanding of the varieties of psychotherapy. But I remember, uh, (laughs) this may seem implausible to you. But when I first spoke with him and I said, I think I want to be a girl, he said something like, oh, do you want to have a messy period every month? I was shocked by that. Where did oh that come God. from? It, it was, am, I, it was contra- am, am I right in thinking this around about 1964, 65, where it was mm-hmm. a much more, from what I can remember of my studies, it was a very paternalistic industry, psychotherapy, where they were very on high kind of, you know, you know, <laughs> scratching their kind of chins and telling people what they what they thought of them. Oh, that's how my, my kind of perception of, of of therapy in the 60s. There I have, I've wiped out a whole decade. But <laughs> well, I, I don't want to seem unempathetic towards this therapist, but my impression was that he didn't really understand the place I was coming from and was rather skeptical of it. Uh, Nor did he understand why anybody might want to be a woman. I mean, as a woman, I'm like, that's that's not how I think of myself as just having a messy period once a month. I mean, that's that's absolutely fascinating and so dismissive. So I, I just the reason I think this is so important, Anne, is because when we talk about what to do with gender dysphoria, a lot of the hyper affirmative clinicians say psychotherapy doesn't work. And what I would just like to point out to our audience, and maybe you can reflect if you agree or not, is that perhaps that was the type of therapy that was attempted with people who were distressed about gender. And so it's not a surprise to me that that kind of cold, dismissive attitude didn't help you feel connected to the therapist, didn't help you feel um, willing to share more or talk more. So I just think that's really important when people say psychotherapy doesn't work. Well, what has actually been the type of relationship attempted to be fostered between client and therapist? So I don't know if you agree with that. I just think it's fascinating that that was the first meeting with a therapist. Well, I'm happy to address my opinions about whether psychotherapy works or not. But let's remember, this was a different era. This was before feminism really took hold. Um, And let's face it, a lot of men are rather disrespectful and dismissive of women and women's experience. That was especially true when I was growing up. So I'm not sure one can judge psychotherapy in general by the response that I elicited. But But I will say that I am rather skeptical about the benefits of psychotherapy, or at least let's say, about the ability of psychotherapy to significantly modify autogynophilic feelings. Anyway, to continue briefly with my story, I realized that if I was going to accomplish anything that I had to get 
access to estrogens, to suppress testosterone and foster the development of female typical characteristics. And I tried to, I tried to imagine how I could do that. At age 18, I succeeded in obtaining some chemical grade diethylstilbestrol. It's a potent um, synthetic estrogen from the chemical supply house. I dissolved it in oil and rubbed it into my skin. And eventually, I was able to achieve significant feminization. I grew little breasts, but I also found that my libido was considerably reduced, and that inevitably blunted my autogynophilic feelings. I said, well, you know, what's this about? What can I do? Am I destined not to want to be a girl or a woman every time I attempt to do so? So it was a conundrum for me. I also considered self-castration, but I realized that if I attempted that, I would simply be regarded as crazy, and that would destroy my life. I would be seen as psychotic, and I wanted to be successful. I wanted to have a career. I entered college hoping to be a mathematician, actually, and I realized that an attempt at self-castration would it essentially destroy my life at that period of time. So I, I put that away. I tried to live successfully as a man. And from time to time, throughout my history, I would experiment with estrogens and eventually give it up, in part because I could see no future in it. I couldn't conceptualize what I could do if I was successful in feminization. I didn't seem to be naturally feminine. I didn't seemed to have great trouble living as a man, and I couldn't find any way of understanding, making sense of the conflicting feelings I felt. My comfort with the male gender role, but my discomfort with my male body. This is absolutely fascinating because I'm curious, when you decided to experiment with this synthetic estrogen by mixing it with oil and rubbing it on your body, was this something you just kind of studied a little bit about this synthetic estrogen and guessed that this would work? Had you read other reports of individuals who tried such a thing? Like, I, I'm really interested in how you kind of came to that idea because it obviously worked to some degree. How did you, how did you decide to do that? I'm I'm kind of gathering just to add to Sasha's question. I'm also intrigued. Um, I gather that there was circles that if you wanted to hear about estrogen and if you wanted to hear about trans, you could find it in their own circles. There were circles of people who were interested in trans and they kind of swapped information pre-internet days. And was it through this or what? How did you find it out? And did you easily access the estrogen? Where did it come from? It came from a chemical supply house, uh, and it was fairly easy to obtain. I didn't have any confidants. I didn't have any other dysphoric people that I knew. But I was a smart little kid, and I knew that there were synthetic estrogens, and I knew that hormones could be um, absorbed. Effective, absorbed transdermally. Wow. So I just put it together on my own. And were you a presenting chemist? <laughs> yeah. Were you presenting as feminine or presenting as masculine? Or was this your private kind of scenario that was happening in your own home? Well, it was actually happening in a dorm room at the University of Chicago. But uh, 
I did cross-dress publicly occasionally during those times. I had some friends in uh, among uh, gay men, and I occasionally would go out to a, a concert or some sort of an event dressed in women's clothes. But uh, somehow it could, couldn't be more than episodic. Um, I, I couldn't find any way to integrate those sort of experiences into my broader life. That's amazing. So you you found yourself kind of experimenting with estrogens kind of on and off as you're describing these like intermittent periods of experimentation. Um, where are you comfortable taking us in this story? How far are you willing to share? Well, I made several attempts to not express my autogynephilic or, or transgender feelings. I kept thinking, well, if I just find the right woman, I can master these feelings. And I tried many things. I tried making art about my feelings. Um, this, this, these were in the days when uh, computer art was just starting to become really possible, when large storage systems developed. And I made quite a bit of art. I even won an award for my self-feminization computer art at one point, but art didn't satisfy me. So I gradually became more desperate, and I also encountered Ray Blanchard's writings on autogynephilia. And that was kind of a light bulb going off for me, a sense that, oh, well, there is a narrative, there's there's a theory that speaks to my experience in a way that I haven't seen before. I won't say that reading Ray's work was necessarily the thing that set me forward, but I think it was an important precondition to my being able to work to move forward. So you you read Ray Blanchard's work, and then how did that shift or evolve your thinking or your experience of of these propensities? A difficult question. I believe that the important thing was realizing that there was a there was a narrative, there was a model for what I wanted to do that was possible for me to move forward in the way that others had, despite my attraction to women, despite the fact mm-hmm. that I wasn't pervasively feminine, and despite the fact that I was sexually aroused by the idea of being a woman. And and for a long time, this inherent sexual arousal was both very shameful to me, it was inexplicable, and it also seemed like it was a kind of contraindication to moving ahead. It felt like my desire to be female was merely a fetish or a a sexual aberration rather than part of a, a syndrome that could effectively lead to and result in uh, a gender transition that that might be effective and and valid. I'm not sure that makes much sense, but mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. that's my recollection. I think that's a really interesting point, and I think a lot of people um, kind of worry about that. The fact that it comes from a sexual place almost makes it a, a less valid place for people to 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 kind of contemplate or something like that. The fact it almost feels like people think it's contaminated because it's a sexual drive 
that is driving it as opposed to some sort of existential drive, if you follow mm. me. And there's a there's almost more respect given to the existential um, drive than the sexual drive. I know I might be speaking in tongues here, but I wonder, you did say a sense of shame. And I, I would imagine there that it must have been, I suppose, on some level, maybe quite secretive. And I'd like to know if it was. But I'd also like to know, was it a very painful place or was it just a kind of a, a, a stone in your shoe about your sexual drive that you were managing? Or was it a kind of a, an absolute devastating part of you? It was a um, preoccupation. It was an obsession. I hated the things that were characteristic of my body. I hated developing them. I didn't like my penis. I didn't like using it for sex. When a woman seemed to enjoy the masculine aspects of my body, that felt incongruent with my sense of self. Um, I despaired of ever being able to really like my body. And that's that's an awful feeling to have to walk around and look in the mirror, get in the shower, and find aspects of yourself that just seem inconsistent with who you think you are and profoundly shameful. It's like, this is not how I want to be. This is not how I want to think of myself, not how I want to present myself. So I think it was somewhere between being a, a stone in my shoe and a constant source of despair and distress it was like something that kept haunting me, and I could take my mind off it for a while, maybe long periods of time, but it would always come back. And when it did, it was always painful. And do you, do you think, you, you when you did transition in your 40s, do you think it was, you should have done it 20 years previously, you did it at the right time? What What is your kind of feeling around the timing of it as such? Well, given the understanding of transsexualism at the time, I think it would have been impossible to do it earlier. There just wasn't enough understanding. I think I would have been rejected. I think I would have been viewed as an inappropriate candidate for sex reassignment. And I didn't really have the understanding, the words to um, make sense of what I wanted and present what I wanted. And even when I did transition, this was in 1995, 1996, I was very cautious not to talk too much about the sexual arousal that I experienced. I I think, I believe that psychotherapists uh, and uh, psychiatrists would would consider it disqualifying in some way, that they would be suspicious of me if I expressed those feelings. So I I de-emphasized them didn't lie about them exactly. I wasn't often asked about them because there wasn't much understanding of the role of sexual arousal in the ideology of some cases of male-to-female transsexualism at the time. But it wasn't something that I was eager to proclaim. Mm-hmm. And you started university to study math. And then, of course, lo and behold, we all know you became a physician, sex researcher, and academic writer. So I, I find, I don't want to be presumptuous, but you then spent, I would assume, a large part of your professional and career life trying to understand this phenomenon that you experienced and that you couldn't find a lot of empathy for. So can you tell us how did you end up 
shifting gears from mathematics to medicine? Well, I I abandoned mathematics because I discovered I simply wasn't smart enough to be a theoretical mathematician. I was I was bright, but I I had to be fairly bright to get into the University of Chicago at age 16, but yeah. I wasn't smart enough for that. Those are the super geniuses. I wasn't one of those. It was also at a time when there was, I think, profound concern about what was going to happen to the world. We were talking about possible nuclear war, nuclear winter. I thought it would be important for me to develop career skills that would be useful no matter what happened. So medicine was the route I decided to take, and it may not have been the best choice, but it seemed like a good choice at the time. Why do you say it may not have been the best choice? Well, I think my skills might have been of greater use to me in a different kind of profession. If I had to do it over again, I'd probably be an attorney rather than a physician. (laughs) <laughs> that's really interesting. I, I think that's really interesting because people often look at transition in the long term as if I had it to do it all over again, what would I do? Now, you can do that with your marriage, with where you choose to live. You can do that with all your big decisions. Mm-hmm. And when you come to a certain age, I think I've reached it, you realise you've made certain decisions that the, the chance to do it all over again is is, is more limited as, as life goes on. Like when you're 30, you've always, I could do it all over again. I can, you know, I can, I can go this way, that way and the other. And then you kind of go, oh, no, I've, I've made my decisions and now I need to live with them. I think there's a lot, very little written about the long term reflections of people who've transitioned. And I'm interested to know in that context, where do you think this lands? I haven't done any research in that area myself. And I think those narratives are largely missing. If there were more of them, I think it could inform the decisions that we make about whether or not to transition. What I will say is that transition is certainly not a cure for what ails autogynephilic transsexuals. After transition, the rate of suicide, for example, is still quite elevated relative to the population in general. So we continue to have problems, sometimes very severe problems, even after we transition. And of course, there are sporadic reports of individuals who detransition, who find that it just wasn't right for them. There are also a few cases I know of of people who have undergone sex reassignment surgery, who've changed their bodies, but go back to living as men or as certainly as very masculine women. And I think I think that makes a lot of sense. You can treat your autogynephilia by changing your body. You don't necessarily treat it by changing your gender expression. And that's that's not really essential to the process of resolving these distressing and incomprehensible feelings. In my own life, my presentation has become much more androgynous as it aged. After I transitioned, I just delighted in looking as feminine as possible. You just couldn't get me out of dresses and skirts. Now I don't own a dress or a skirt. And my presentation is somewhat androgynous. It just feels more authentic to who I am. 
I've actually heard this from a lot of um, trans women who are perhaps a little bit older or transitioned multiple decades ago, that there's a kind of evolution in the way they integrate the sense of femininity in their appearance, their aesthetic, their clothing. Their... So I think that's really interesting. And again, I think this is one of the things that we don't often hear about in these contemporary discussions, particularly because I think many of the kind of mainstream narratives are written by either people who are eager to transition or have very, very recently transitioned. So they tend to be these kind of hyperbolic images of what woman is, hyperbolic image of what masculine is. Um, so I think that's very interesting. You talked about, you know, this not being exactly a cure. What are some of the um, other kind of I suppose, limitations or consequences that you think people should be aware of? Well, unless you transition very early, it's very difficult to pass as a natal woman if you transition male to female. You probably will never be regarded as a natal woman. You might be regarded as a good or sincere or committed transsexual woman, but you miss a lot of what comes to natal women in our society. You also may miss some of the negative things that come to natal women in our society. But it's hard to find a partner who will accept your sort of unique anatomic and gender um, situation. I think for that reason, and also because of the nature of our, our underlying pattern of sexual arousal, that relationships with other people can be very difficult. So I think many post-operative male-to-female transsexuals are quite lonely and are have difficulty finding partners. That's awful. Uh, to, to experience the kind of loneliness of not being able to interact socially with a partner, to cuddle with a partner, to feel the, the oxytocin feeling that comes from physical intimacy. That's, that's a great loss. And I think it, it's something we don't talk enough about. It's also true that I think for many transsexuals, male to female transsexuals, the process of undergoing transition has been so arduous. It's been so painful that we're inclined not to admit that we might have made a mistake or that there might have been a downside to it. I think we tend to emphasize the positive aspects because it's so hard to confront the negative aspects, the part that we might want to do over or rethink. That kind of cognitive dissonance, having gone through something so difficult, not wanting to admit that. Mm. It might be cognitive dissonance. It might just be a kind of uh, ambivalence that's inherent mm. to the process. It has mm -hmm. some some benefits as a treatment. It also has some significant limitations. Mm -hmm. I suppose I think the concept of regret is, is fascinating. And there's kind of evolutionary advantages to regret because you learn a cautionary tale not to do something again. But when it's something in the context of that... It's there isn't very much evolutionary advantage not to do that again because you're unlikely to do that again if you follow me. So I think people shy away from the concept of regret. It just doesn't feel 
efficient psychologically and so people tend to assimilate it into their I'm glad I did it because I've become the person I am no matter what the experience is we tend to kind of almost assimilate not many people truly regret many experiences um, generally they, they assimilate within but I, I, I want to ask a question that might seem a bit silly but I've always I've never felt it's been answered and I've got a feeling you're the person to answer it. But maybe maybe I'm wrong. But I, I, I always think there's a huge contradiction that there's a sexual arousal, there's a sexual drive, and that's what drives the autogynophilic male to seek transition. And this is this is from the sex drive. And you alluded it to it earlier, because when you started using oestrogen, the, the the sex drive reduced and therefore you were in a bind. No no sooner do I do the solution, but the solution negates the need for the solution. And then I meet so many autogynophilic because of the field I'm working in, um, post transition, and I'm like, but has it not have you not completely and utterly nullified the reason for for transitioning when you are post operative, when you're when you're when you've gone to a complete transition, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me at all how that drive would still be there. Ray Blanchard wrote about that subject, and I've written about it too. Uh, He makes the analogy to a heterosexual marriage. It might begin with intense feelings of sexual arousal, uh, and those may continue to some extent throughout the relationship, but eventually other factors come into play as well. You develop a deep friendship, a kind of a bonding for your spouse. It goes beyond mere sexual arousal. Uh, The presence of the spouse, uh, the partner feels comforting. It's meaningful to you. It it gives a sense of coherence to your life. And many heterosexual couples stay married and very devoted to each other, even if they're not very sexually aroused by each other. They may not be engaged in overt sexual expression, undoubtedly there are still undercurrents of sexual attraction, but it may no longer be the main show, the main reason for maintaining the the relationship. I think something analogous to that is true of male-to-female transsexualism. It's also the case, um, and several people have written about this, that after experiencing these feelings for a while, they become part of your identity. Things like taking on a female name, uh, developing a complete female wardrobe uh, expression, those become integrated as a part of who you are. And that sense that that this is something intrinsic to your sense of self or has developed into something that feels like an essential part of yourself, may continue even after sexual arousal diminishes or disappears completely. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high-quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. 
If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. And if it's okay, I'd like to shift gears a bit and talk about your book. Um, this is this expansive account of all things you could possibly ask about <laughs> autogynephilia. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how did you decide to write the book? What was the research process like? Uh, and to give the audience maybe a general sense of like, what it, what is this book about? I know those are kind of three questions wrapped in one. All through my life, I had suffered from the absence of narratives gave meaning to my experience. I said, has anyone written about what I experience in a way that helps me to make sense of who I am and what I want to do? And I I had great difficulty finding those. In one chapter of my book, I, I tried to summarize what I had found in my research about narratives by transsexuals that mention autogynephilia or sexual arousal. And there, there are very few in number. So I wanted to try to collect some evidence that would help other gender dysphoric males and also helping professionals understand what's really going on in our heads, what we experience. And so I solicited narratives on my website, which was called Transsexual Women's Resources. I invited people to write to me and I got not a lot of responses, but I got hundreds of responses. I went through them. I edited them, edited them, uh, according to a qualitative analysis technique called grounded theory. I excerpted them and I presented them thematically in a way that I hoped would make sense both to other transsexuals who are struggling to understand themselves and also to helping professionals. In addition, I tried to summarize what was at the time known about autogynephilia and related phenomena to try to develop a scientific or a clinical context for the, the narratives I was presenting. I hope that it would be useful not only to current generations of uh, gender dysphoric men and clinicians, but would be a resource for the future. And I'm happy to say that my book remains in print. I continue to get emails from time to time saying, oh, I read your book. It was so helpful. So uh, it was. I sort of thought of it as my legacy uh, to the future. Was there any controversy around your book? Obviously, I think it must be an amazing feeling to have individuals reach out and feel recognized and feel the book was helpful. But did you have any pushback? Oh, yes. Uh, people thought I was heretical, that I was a traitor to my transsexual community, that I was the Antichrist. Uh, and so I were revealing some secret that people didn't want to see disclosed, or more commonly, that I had completely misinterpreted or uh, misexpressed the feelings of people who had gender dysphoria. I got some negative emails and I've stopped Googling myself or searching for myself online because there's so many negative characterizations of me. I, it was traumatic, and I didn't want to um, traumatize myself by looking for them. I think I'm widely regarded as an anathema in my, my own community. 
I also got some very favorable reviews in sexology journals. So that was comforting. But in a sense, writing the book and also um, expressing my admiration for Blanchard uh, and for Mike Bailey after his book, um, The Man Who Would Be Queen, I think that really put me in, in a position where I, where I was an outsider and I was fair game for anything anything negative that people wanted to say about me. And they had a lot of negative things to say about me. You said earlier that uh, some of your views are considered heretical. So th- they are some of them. Have you have you s- m- many views on the on the kind of rapid onset, gen- rapid onset gender dysphoria kind of group of young people? And do, do you do you see any overlap between autogynephilia males and ROGD, because I'm personally very interested in, in can there be an overlap and how it might manifest? Could you explain what you mean by rapid onset gender dysphoria? Well, do you know Lisa Lippman's paper from 2018? I don't believe I read it, no. OK, well, she wrote a paper and she gathered hundreds of parents' reports on children who, um, they're teenage children who were, kind of gender conforming mostly, not all of them. And they suddenly and rapidly um, took on a a trans identification after a trauma, after spending a a long time online and very much influenced by their peers. And it's a very specific phenomenon that isn't really very it's not seen in the medical literature before around the the trans phenomenon it feels a very new kind of cohort that hasn't been studied before and that hasn't been seen I think Sasha's dying to come in to correct everything I've said well no no I mean that's right but I think the important thing is these are mostly females so these are like 14 or 15 year old females who have a peer group that are all kind of coming out as trans at the same time. And at least from the perspective of, my, of myself and Stella, we see this as being somewhat similar to, um, you know, cutting, how that seemed to spread amongst females in peer groups or eating disorders. So it has a similar, I guess, flavor, I think, to some of those phenomena. But what we have noticed is that we sometimes do um, work with young males or hear from parents of boys who seem to have a similar pattern insofar as, you know, they they didn't really have a lot of friends at school. And then they kind of fell into a group of kids who were all talking a lot about gender identity and gender labels and taking on new identities. And it seems like there may be some social influence in the cases of boys. However, a lot of the researchers, um, you know, seem to believe that it seems less plausible that a male might be influenced socially. And perhaps there was some autogynephilic propensity that was just latent or didn't have an area for expression until it became more socially acceptable. So we're kind of still trying to parse out this question. I think Stella and I think that there can be boys who take on this identity in a way that also feels uh, maybe inauthentic. However, I, I think what you've described and what Blanchard has described and Bailey's described is that for a lot of autogynephilic males, you wouldn't know because they don't have this childhood femininity. So it's a, it's a bit of a mysterious question. <laughs> um, so given that we've just caught you up in like a 30 second clip, <laughs> give, us, give us your best shot your here, hot Anne. Take. <laughs> yeah, hot take. 
Well, you alluded to something that I think is very relevant. My parents, when I came out to them at age 14, would have certainly said, oh, my goodness, this is rapid onset gender dysphoria. It was news to them. I also believe that the Internet has changed everything, no matter what you feel or think you feel. You can probably find a peer group. And so the question of contagion, uh, I think, is very relevant. Probably I would have tried to transition earlier if I'd had access to the Internet at that time, if I could find a peer group, if I could find stories that helped me understand myself. And in fact, that was the reason, one of the reasons I wrote my book, to find to help people find stories to help them understand themselves, hopefully avoiding the issue of contagion. But I think what you said makes a lot of sense. I also think it makes sense that the phenomenon would be more prevalent among females, simply because in this culture, as in so many, it's very difficult to be happy being a female. Uh, issues of, of bodies and of uh, early emphasis on sexuality, of feeling disrespected by the, the broader community, uh, I think are pervasive, and hopefully they're changing, but I don't think we're done with them yet, or we'll be done with them anytime soon. Not to mention having messy periods once a month, as your, as your therapist I'm said. I'm almost sorry I mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I joke. I mean, uh, yeah, it's a different time. Um you know, you also have written, you sent us this really great paper that you wrote about narcissistic rage. You were writing about the attacks that Mike Bailey experienced after he wrote his book. Um, and you talked about uh, the way this kind of fragility or incongruence between how an autogynephilic male may see themselves and be perceived by the world can create this great deal of shame, which can lead into narcissistic rage. Can you expand on that a little bit more? I found that concept really interesting. When I reflected on what Mike Bailey had experienced, it seemed to me to represent a clear case of autogynephilic rage, oh, sorry, of narcissistic rage. And I was trying to make sense of, of that, why it should be seen that way. And I turned to the work of self-psychologist uh, Heinz Kohut, um, probably the person who's written the most about narcissistic traits or personality disorders and how they come about. Kohut theorized that two processes are essential to the development of a healthy and authentic sense of self in adulthood. Those are what he called mirroring and idealization. Mirroring happens when significant people in your environment see you accurately and empathetically and mirror you back to yourself, that they, you can understand that the person who is mirroring you has seen you approvingly and accurately. Idealization is when you're able to identify with a person or a concept that you see as powerful or admirable. That's Kohut's theory. And it seems to me that those kinds of experiences are very difficult for autogynephilic youngsters to achieve. Much of their cross-dressing is done secretively. 
they received the message that femininity in boys is is a terrible thing, that it's shameful. They because their activities are secretive, they don't they can't be observed, they can't be mirrored. If they are discovered, they are they are not uh, mirrored with empathy, but rather with disapproval or derision. And so that kind of experience is something that they may not achieve. And the question is, who do you idealize if you're an autogynephilic young man? You may not be able to completely identify with your mother or with female care, caregivers because you see, you recognize that you are different from them in your gender expression. And it's hard to idealize men, too. Maybe you're a little more successful there, but you see yourself as being different from them in, in significant ways because you want to be female. And according to Kohut, and I think he's, his explanation makes a lot of sense, those lack of, the lack of um, mirroring and idealization predisposes a person to feeling that they're somehow deeply inadequate, that their self is, um, that they have a sense of shame and a sense of the inadequacy of themselves. And the defense against this is to develop a, a narcissistic attitude. The, uh, the contrary view that one is exceptional, that one is deserving of great respect, that um, one is, has entitlement, a certain lack of empathy towards others. Uh, those are some of the classic characteristics of a narcissistic person, an a, in extreme form of narcissistic personality disorder. And I think we see evidence of a lot of that in the persons who attacked Mike Bailey. I will also say that um, experiencing someone as being disrespectful to your sense of self and reacting negatively to that doesn't necessarily predispose narcissistic traits. For example, if I was in Saudi Arabia and I said, there is no God, uh, Muhammad is pronouncements are of no value. I might very well be killed for that. And that doesn't mean that the religious police in Saudi Arabia are all a bunch of narcissists or have narcissistic personality. I think when you say something heretical in a culture, you can be experience severe disapproval and uh, sometimes very painful attacks, even by people who don't have narcissistic personality disorder or narcissistic traits. So I think it's um, it's hard to let me try that again. It's easy to oversimplify those circumstances and attribute everything that um, that I and Bailey and Blanchard have experienced to simply to narcissism. I think it's complicated. Oh, that's such a good point. And because our culture has almost like a, a, a religious fervor around what you're allowed to say and not allowed to say around gender, perhaps that lifts up that kind of contextual element that can be taken out of the interpersonal psychology or I guess the personal psychology and more into a cultural understanding. That's very helpful. I think that's an accurate, accurate summary.
And um, have you any strong uh, views around, um, there's a lot written these days around, the, let's say they're often called the trans widows. These would be women who have been married to autogynophilic males. And some of them have, the, uh, no, uh, a lot of the ones that are 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 speaking out are talking a lot about narcissism. And when we spoke to Ray Blanchard and Mike Bailey, we asked them a little bit about this and they seemed to think that there was, if I'm right in paraphrasing, that there was certainly some autogynophile males who who had narcissism, but it wasn't necessarily all of them. That it, it's not a, it's not an inevitable combination, but it was a combination that they'd noticed. I don't know. Have you have you had much thought around that whole cohort? Well, I would agree with Mike Bailey and Ray Blanchard that narcissism is probably not or at least clinically apparent narcissism is, is probably not an inevitable accompaniment to autogynophilia. I, I think it varies. There's a spectrum. About the issue of trans widows, um, I'm certainly empathetic toward women who have had their marriages disrupted by a transition that they didn't see coming, and also to the children of those relationships. I think it's a great loss to them, and they may feel not only disappointed, but betrayed. But contextually, in the United States, about half of marriages end in divorce. And they, I think if you talk to divorced people, they will often say that they discovered aspects of their partner that they hadn't realized. It had come as a shock or surprise to them. And that this quickly or gradually causes the dis- dissolution of the relationship. So without trying to minimize the consequences of transition for committed relationships, I think it has to be put in a broader social context. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily unique in, in its disruptive qualities. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I do think that there's, I, I think you're right that it could be put in context. I do think I've heard and I've read a, a lot of accounts of a lot of very abusive relationships around autogynophilia and women. I, I have read a lot of them and I'm not sure. And I'd love to know what is the percentage, if you follow me, like, you, you know, we don't know how many of these are of the percentage of autogynophilic uh, relationships. And I, I, on top of that, I was very interested. I think it was very Blanchard who said whether people with autogynophilia should marry is a question that should be raised. And I, I, thought, I was a bit shocked when he said it, and it set me thinking, because he, he seemed to think that it, it brings with it a lot of pain, for example, like you say, to, to, the, to the wives, but to the children as well. I think it's, it's a lot to ask of a child to see their, their, their father, for example, transition for a reason that's to, to do with sex. And to live that, and I've met these children, and to kind of assimilate that as they're going through their own puberty and their own adolescence and their own sexual formation, it it is an an extraordinarily um, heavy concept for for a teenage boy, for example, to bear of their father, if you follow me. So I suppose I'm interested to know what are your thoughts around that. I know you mentioned the loneliness that that can sometimes be under under expected really pre-transition 
I expressed an opinion about that in my book. And what I, I said, I think this is close to word for word, that I would encourage males with severe autogynephilia to really be very cautious about entering into marriage, to think twice, because it's sometimes entered into as an attempted solution that is very likely to fail. And the consequences can be devastating for everyone involved. So I think I would advise people with severe autogynephilia to exercise extreme caution. Now, there are some autogynephiles for whom autogynephilic arousal is a fairly minor issue. It coexists with a rather robust other-directed gynephilia. And for those individuals, I think marriage is a very reasonable choice. We have to remember that autogynephilia is a spectrum. It's not a, a black or white issue. But in the severe cases, when it, it essentially supplants sexuality that's directed toward women or toward other people, then I think marriage is quite problematic. You also mentioned the phenomenon of, I believe you pronounce it analoeroticism, which is like having no sexual interest in another person. Does that play a role in this? Because you're talking about the, the severity or the scale of autogynephilia. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. Uh, the term analoeroticism, um, formally inaccurately called asexualism, is a phenomenon of not really being very sexually attracted to other people. And I think that can be a common accompaniment of autogynephilia in the sense that your, your preferred erotic object, if you're severely autogynephilic, is really yourself rather than another person. You may be sexually attracted to and aroused by other people, but your most intense turn-on is really yourself. And I think that that often comes out in a relationship probably to the disappointment of both partners. I think it's hard for a woman to believe that she's a less a source of arousal to her partner than his internalized image of himself as a woman. And I think it's a source of incomprehension and shame to a male partner to realize that when he's making love to his female partner, that he's really thinking about himself as a woman rather than her. I think there's a kind of a cognitive dissonance there that can be very distressing to the male partner as well as the female partner. So there's a kind of um, illusion or a, a misconception that underlies some of those relationships. And I, I think that's potentially very harmful. Well, as we round out our time, Anne, I'm just wondering if there's, in this very rare occurrence of you giving an audio interview, is there anything else you would want our um, listeners to understand or anything else you want to say? Well, you alert, alluded earlier to the question of what to do with very young autogynephiles. Yes. And I think that's a, that's a difficult topic, and I'll risk being somewhat heretical here. I think adolescents with extreme autogynephilia, where, that's the, where it seems like that's the most important and significant aspects of their personality, of, of their sexual attraction, have a terrible um, choice to make. They can try to make peace with their autogynephilia, 
or they can try to undergo a course of therapy that prevents them from developing the male typical traits that will cause them so much anguish later on. We use uh, gonadotropin uh, hormone releasing agonists um, to try to avoid the occurrence of puberty in severely gender dysphoric adolescents. But I think they are not commonly available to autogynephilic adolescents early enough to make much of a difference. Who gives GRNH agonists to 14-year-olds who masturbate in women's clothes? I don't think we have any way of getting our heads around that. I think we view visible gender variance as so essential to the concept of adolescent gender dysphoria that we're reluctant to intervene in any other circumstances. And that follows an established medical principle, first do no harm. If you treat people uh, in that circumstance, you, you risk harming them. And uh, there's a natural conservatism about physicians and psychotherapists in that area. But I think there's more than one way to eliminate the effects of testosterone on the body in adolescence that still allow the opportunity for reconsideration. And that way is castration. You know, boys have been castrated for purposes of making them better singers, castrati, uh, in the 16th, 17th century. It was, it was not an uncommon procedure, and it, it, it wasn't invariably fatal. It didn't ha- always have severe consequences. And imagine that you had a 14-year-old autogynephilic transsexual who was intelligent, who understood her circumstances, who was desperate not to avoid, to avoid masculinization. What do, you, what do you do? What does he do? Does he seek out psychotherapy with the goal of qualifying for GRNRH agonists? Or does he take it into his own hands to eliminate the source of endogenous testosterone? With the understanding that if he thinks that's a mistake, he can later take testosterone and masculinize normally. That's essentially what happens to female to male transsexuals. They start out not being masculinized, but testosterone allows them to masculinize sufficiently that they usually have no difficulty passing as male. So at the risk, again, of being very heretical, if I were 14, I knew what I know now, if I had the internet, if I was conversant with the concept of autogynephilia, and I could find out what's involved, what tools do I need? How do I get local anesthetics? How do I by surgical clamps. How do I find a scalpel? I would unquestionably castrate myself. Do you mean chemically castrate? You mean physically castrate? I mean physically castrate. Chemical castration, I mean, how do you do that? You use GRNH agonists, but they're, they're expensive and they're impossible to get without medical help. So often we don't really think about what the consequences are when we allow the masculinizing changes of puberty to develop in these young autogynophiles. Many of them 
uh, or at least some of them, the intelligent ones, are aware nowadays uh, that what they're experiencing is a kind of sexual orientation, uh, that autogynephilia is something that is as unlikely to change as it is conventional heterosexuality or homosexuality. It's something that's kind of, as far as we know, baked into a person. And if it's it's severe, then the consequences of allowing puberty to continue can be a life of tragedy, of, in the case of autogynephilic males, inability to pass, inadequate solutions to, um, to try to make your body conform to an acceptable female presentation, hundreds of hours of electrolysis, feminizing surgery, and even then the the treatment is is mediocre. So I think it's essential that we look for ways to try to to achieve early interventions in individuals who are self-identified as autogynephilic and are aware of the severity of their autogynephilia very early. Now, when I was last researching this area, I was not aware of very young non-homosexual um, gender dysphoric boys getting uh, puberty blockers very early, as early as 13 or 14, uh, when they would really be needed. That was happening in homosexual or pervasively feminine boys. But at last, last time I looked, reviewing the Toronto data, a GRH agonists were being given quite late, 17 or 18-year-olds. And I think that is that's too late to do as much good as could be done. Maybe the situation has changed now. I hope it's changed. But I think it's essential that we find the means to understand the experiences of these young autogynophiles early and that we offer the possibility of medical interventions to prevent irreversible masculinization. Also, if we are able to identify them early, we may be able to alleviate some of the effects of absence of mirroring, absence of idealization, the negative self-concept that sometimes accompanies this. So it not only would have physical benefits, but it might have significant psychological benefits as well. What do you think of the fact that, I would guess if you ask the average gender clinician today, uh, whether they're a therapist or even a physician, they have not heard of autogynephilia. Maybe it's considered some outdated term from yesteryear that is no longer ethical to talk about. Um, what do you think happens in an industry or a field like this when a type of gender dysphoric experience is basically not given a name and is not allowed to be discussed? Yes, well, we've, we've seen an analog of that. Uh, well, homosexuality was treated in the past. Um, it was at one time the love that dare not speak its name. And now autogynephilia is love that dare not speak its name. I think it's inevitable that in an atmosphere in which gender variance is more accepted, that there will be a reluctance to try to pathologize any of its manifestations. And autogynephilia as a concept is often regarded as very negative and pathologizing. 
that's not entirely inaccurate because the concept assumes that there's a kind of developmental pathology going on there. I wouldn't disagree with that, but it's unfashionable. It's not politically correct. And in some circles, it may not be perceived as very useful. That's why um, continuing to think about it and write about it is so important. And uh, in her recent book, um, Trans, Helen Joyce uh, wrote a chapter about autogynephilia. It's chapter three. Uh, she talks about Ray Blanchard's work, Mike Bailey's writing, something about some of my writing. And it's available online. So I think that's something that I would recommend as an accessible introduction to anyone who's interested in trying to understand the phenomenon of autogynephilia in greater depth. When you were doing your research, what was the prevalence rate of autogynephilia? Is that a number anybody has kind of estimated? Well, there are two studies looking at um, the extent to which males report any experience of autogynephilia, and they seem to be about 4 to 5%. Now, this is all data, and there are limitations of it, but to some extent, autogynephilia is maybe as prevalent as exclusive homosexuality in males. We don't really know at this point, but it's certainly not extremely rare. Remember, of course, that, that most cases of autogynephilia are probably comparatively mild, and it's only the most severe cases that lead to the desire for sex reassignment. Have you any idea what would be the numbers around the severe cases? I don't think we really know, um, in part because many of those cases really never come to clinical attention. There are probably many people with severe autogynephilia who go to their graves never having told anyone about it, never having sought uh, professional help for it. So we don't really have any idea at this point. But I suspect it's greatly underreported because it's so incomprehensible and so shameful. Well, we think this kind of conversation can at least bring uh, some light to the topic and some um, access for listeners who may be interested. So uh, if there is nothing else you'd like to add, Anne, I think this would be a, a nice place to wrap it up. I would, uh, I would just like to acknowledge my debt to other researchers in the area, certainly to my colleague Paul Vasey, to uh, Mike Bailey, to Ken Zucker, but most especially to Ray Blanchard. Almost everything I've written and thought about is a consequence of his amazing work. Sir Isaac Newton once wrote that if he had been able to see farther than other men, it was because he had stood on the shoulders of giants. And in my case, Ray Blanchard was a giant in the field of sexology who helped me reach the conclusions and understand the phenomenon that was so important to my writing and to my personal journey. So thank you to Ray Blanchard. Thank you to Anne Lawrence too. Thank you so much, Anne Lawrence. It's a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. 
Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 